Good evening, Risen Hope, and good morning to our friends joining on Sunday. How's everybody doing? Wonderful. I love that. Praise God. I'm doing wonderful this morning as well. Uh, Let me pray real quick and ask God for his blessing on the word today. Heavenly Father, we love you. We really do. You are precious to us. It is an awesome thing that you send your, your son into the world to redeem us. I pray that as we enter and continue to progress in this Christmas season, Father, that your grace would powerfully be exerted in our lives to give us a, a kind of wonder, a kind of understanding, a sense of awe about who you are, about you sending your precious son into the world to die for sinners like us. May we feel the weight of that in this Christmas season, and may you be magnified in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7 reads like this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So last week, we began a series looking at this passage, which is very familiar to us uh, around the Christmas season. We're very familiar with this text. Uh, But one of the things we said about it last week was that uh, this text is not mainly about Christmas. This text is about hope and light being spoken into bleak darkness. The promise of this child to be born, this son to be given, is the promise that wasn't given to the people of Israel when everything was going well for them. It was given to them in their darkest hour. When, as far as they were concerned, there was no hope. The people of Israel had been taken captive. They had been sent into exile by Assyria. At least they were in the process of being sent. Everything they knew, everything they hold, held dear in their lives, their, their home, their land, their possessions, their property, was all gone, taken from them. Everything 
But then Isaiah speaks verse two over them. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So this darkness was not the end. There, there was a light that was coming. And this light, we said, was the same reality as verses six, verse six is child. To us, a child is born. To us, the son is given. That's the light. That's the hope in this passage. And you and I know, we talked about this last week, that light is Jesus. Jesus is the child to be born. Jesus is the son to be given. And that is why, for us, this passage has such significance during the Christmas season. The birth of Jesus Christ was the first dawning of that light in history. And here, Isaiah is speaking this hope, this promise, this prophecy in the middle of Israel's darkness. And that is the reason why I feel very compelled to be in this text with you at the end of a year like 2020. When for many of us, for one reason or another, this year has been a year of darkness, a year of futility, a year that feels like hopelessness is reigning. But here's the deal, and I want you to hear this up front before we get into the text. God is not done. He is not done. God is still speaking through this passage. He's still speaking over the running centuries through this passage to his people. He's still speaking to you. He's still speaking to me through this text. And he will continue to speak this promise in the scriptures, the promise of Isaiah 9, until the glorious kingdom of verse 7 finally arrives. He will not stop speaking this promise to us. And so for today, I feel driven uh, to bring this passage and its hope directly in contact with our lives as we close out this year. And I want to force it into the parts of our lives where light desperately needs to shine. But I'm going to be real with you. This is not going to be easy. This is not an easy task. It's not going to be easy for me, and it's not going to be easy for you because in order for us to, to truly embrace the light that Isaiah is talking about in verse 2, we need to come to grips with the darkness. We need to see the darkness for what it really is. We need to find out why is it that this light had to come? Why did he have to shine? And we need to look right into the face of this darkness. Clearly, exile, which is being sort of used to frame this darkness, the exile of the people of Israel was a tragic and dark situation in and of itself. But the real question is, why did that happen? Why did God have to hand over his people to another nation and them being sent to exile? Well, we see in order to see that, we need to go from chapter 9 to chapter 8. So if you would turn with me from chapter 9, which is where we're at, to chapter 8, verse 11. <clears throat> and we're going to see why it is God sent his people into exile. Verse 11, so God is going to lay his hand on Isaiah here. He's going to show him the source, the main reason for this darkness. Look at this, starting with verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me. This is Isaiah talking with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear. 
nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So God here reaches out. He puts his strong hand, says, on Isaiah, which I don't know about you, <laughs> but that does not sound pleasant to me. Whatever God is communicating to Isaiah here is not a joke. It's not trivial. It is profoundly important. God is warning Isaiah. He's putting his strong hand on the prophet and saying, do not walk in the way that this people walks. Don't walk the way they walk. The problem he articulates here as the way that the people of Israel are walking is they're walking in fear and dread. And it's not a fear and dread problem necessarily. It's because they are fearing and dreading the wrong things. They're looking at superficial things in this world, transient things in this world, things in this world that are cosmically insignificant realities, and they're fearing them. The very people who should and should have always known since the very beginning of their covenant relationship with God, known who Yahweh was, the Lord of hosts, known that he was Lord over all reality. Instead of fearing him, God is saying to Isaiah, their fear and their dread is fixated on something else. They're acting without view of and without confidence in God's absolute sovereign governance over all things. That's what's happening here. That's what happens when we are afraid of something other than fearing God. Verse 13 tells us that when they do that, they are not honoring God as holy. When the fear of a person is fixated on things in this world, it is dishonoring to God. And the reason why is because God runs this world. He's in complete control of this world every millisecond that this world is around. And God specifically says here that to not fear him and to not dread him in the right way is to not honor him as holy. And before we look at what this term holy means as God's sort of describing it about himself and saying that they should honor him as holy, I, I wanna think for a moment with you about fear. The word here in Hebrew is mora, and it, it, the word for fear, not dread. He has fear and dread here. Mora itself means terror. That's what it means in the original Hebrew. So this isn't, I want to just be clear, this isn't just awe. This isn't just respect. This isn't just reverence. This is a kind of holy fear. And I think what we try to do is we try to take the biblical text and downplay the language that God uses to depict himself, especially when it comes to fearing God, to be merely respect or reverence, which is true. We should respect and revere God, but the ESV doesn't use reverence for a reason. This is real fear. This is real dread over who God truly is in his glory. And here's why it's important to start here. If we don't start there, if we don't begin with just his awesomeness being a fearful thing, it will make little difference to you in the end when that fearsome God pardons us of our treason and our sin. So we as people who are formed and shaped by the Bible need to create categories in our minds that correspond with reality. And this book tells us what reality is. Not our own definitions, not our own desires, Reality, Yahweh is saying, 
to Isaiah, I should be your fear. I should be your dread. Honor me as holy. So this word holy, how we should honor God. In Hebrews, in Hebrew, it doesn't just mean righteous or morally perfect. It means way more than that. To be holy and to honor God as holy is to say that the thing that is holy is set apart for God. It is committed to, devoted to the glory of the living God. It is to be cut off from the rest of this world, everything profane in this world, and to be set apart for the glory of God. So to honor God as holy, for us to do that, for the people of Israel thousands of years ago to do that, to honor God as holy is to show that God alone, to act, to live in such a way that it shows that God alone is God. He alone is God. He is completely different from all other things in this world. There is literally nothing like God. He alone is worthy of fear. He alone is worthy to be honored as holy. So when we are afraid of things in this world, when they grip us, when they capture our hearts and make us afraid, there is a kind of refusal to recognize who God is in that moment. Even if it's passive, we lose sight of who he is. So there's a connection between understanding and embracing the power and greatness of God such that it creates in our hearts a kind of fear and dread about the immensity of his being and with, with holiness, with, with honoring him as holy. These people, the people of Israel, were fearing something else more than God. And in doing that, they were, they were ignoring the majesty of God. And to ignore God's majesty, to, to, to refuse to honor him as holy, isn't just foolish. It is, as we're going to see here, a catastrophic failure that can lead to complete destruction. So in the passage that follows this, verse 14, look at this. After commanding Isaiah to honor him as holy and to fear him, God says this in verse 14. He, that is God, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So there are only two paths laid out here before Isaiah and the people of Israel. One of, one of the paths is fearing things in this world. And the other path is fearing the living God. Those are the only two realities, paradigms that are offered here. The second path, fearing God, will make him your sanctuary. He will become your refuge. He will become your protection. But if we fear, like the people of Israel did here, what the world fears, God will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And then we'll fall over him to our own devastation. He says they shall fall and be broken. They'll be snared and taken into the darkness if they fear what this world fears. Now, Isaiah has just given this word to the people of Israel. This is his prophecy to them about what God is saying to him. 
And he's trying to show them their great need to turn from fearing things that they have in their lives to fearing God alone and regarding him as holy. He wants them to make that shift. So verse 16 begins with, now that he's heard God say this to him, his response to receiving this message. Look at what Isaiah says in response to what God has just told him about a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. He says, bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I, this is Isaiah talking, and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah is saying to the people, after what he's just heard from God, bind up this testimony. Seal up this teaching among my disciples. Everything that he said about fearing God, about honoring God as holy, he's pleading with them. He's saying, listen to this. Wait for God. Even if it looks like he's hiding his face from, uh, from us, hope in him alone. Because that is what fearing God looks like. It acknowledges his infinite superiority his greatness of power, his unparalleled might, and then takes refuge in him. That's who he is. I take refuge in you. To fear God is to say with your life, nothing in this world is my sanctuary, but God Almighty. Nothing is. And when that happens to a person, they become a sign. They become a portent. They become a, a picture of God's greatness. Isaiah says it in verse 18. Those who wait for God are signs and portents from him on high. They show who God really is to this world. Because they're treating God with the honor and the respect he deserves. They become clear signs in this world to everyone who sees them. That person's trust is in something that's not in this world. But here's the deal. These disciples, these children that Isaiah is talking about, who are signs, who are portents, they live among the people of Israel. They live in a world filled with people who do not fear God. Does that sound familiar? So Isaiah issues them a warning. And I want us to hear this warning very, very carefully. Isaiah says, and when they say to you, this world, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick 
darkness. So here we have what we started with at the very beginning in Isaiah 9-2. We find the darkness, the bleakness, the hopelessness. The whole prophecy in Isaiah 9 about the son to be given is an answer to this darkness. It's a response by God to this darkness at the end of chapter eight. Now notice why this is being engaged here. The people of Israel who do not fear God are inquiring of mediums and necromancers, mediums and necromancers, people who talk to the dead. They're not inquiring of God. They're not going to God as their source of hope. They want to ask of the dead on behalf of the living, and so they refuse to go to God. But instead, they put their trust in something else. They put their hope in something else. And in doing that, they do exactly what God and what Isaiah is telling them not to do. They are rejecting the words of God. They are not sealing his words. They are not going to the testimony. They're not embracing the teaching that God has just given them. They are rejecting it. All because they fear other things over fearing God. To go anywhere other than God, to be your sanctuary, to be your confidence, to get hope, to calm your soul, to do that is to show that there's something broken. You may not know him as he ought to be known. In fact, the way that Isaiah describes it here is, he says, verse 20, you have no dawn. They have no, think about that for a moment. They have no dawn. That is frightening. They can't see light. Their spiritual state is a state of perpetual night. There is no morning coming for them. They have no dawn. And that means that their sight, their spiritual senses, their thinking, their affections are all darkened. They do not fear God. They do not honor him as holy. And so they go to these mediums and necromancers. They go to the place they think they need to find the solutions, the answers to their problems. This internal lack of a dawning light in their souls becomes for them a real consuming darkness. They become hungry, it says here. They're enraged. They speak against their king. They speak against their God. And it says here that when they turn back to the earth, as though they're trying to find some kind of relief for the anguish that they're in, they don't find any relief at all. They only find more godless darkness in front of them. Isaiah calls it the gloom of anguish. And this is this language he's using to really depict the physical reality of them being exiled from their own homes, from their own land. This language should be haunting to New Testament believers because it vividly matches the same exact language Jesus uses when he wants to describe the eternal exile the New Testament calls hell, being cast out into outer darkness where there's only weeping and gnashing of teeth, all because they feared other things rather than fearing the one thing that we need to fear and respect and love and cherish. Now, before we look at this light in Isaiah 9, and we're going to look there, we're going to spend time on that light. 
I want to make some observations about fear that are practical and very 2020. I think um, we'd like to believe that Christians in the 21st century, I'm talking to Christians, I'm not talking to unbelievers, I'm talking to Christians. Christians in the 21st century, we'd like to believe that we're a little further along the way than the ancient Israel. We would like to believe that we're not gonna go to mediums, we're not gonna go to necromancers, uh, we're, we're not looking to talk to dead people and find some hope and solace there. But I, I, I want to assert that this year has proven that in a lot of ways, we are not better than ancient Israel. Whether it's because of the coronavirus or whether it's because of social unrest or the political chaos that has been flooded throughout this year, all the different ways this year has created and fostered and perpetuated fear in the hearts of God's people. I think it's revealed in a lot of American Christianity and maybe just global Christianity, a misplaced hope. We would say that we don't go to fortune tellers. Uh, We would say that we don't go to necromancers or mediums for hope uh, because it's ridiculous to do that. But in reality, are we, we should ask this question, are we inquiring of the dead for the sake of the living? The main problem with these people going to mediums isn't that they're fortune tellers. That's an issue. That's secondary. The main problem with these people going to mediums is that they are ignoring what their God has said. They're ignoring God. It is a manifestation of their lack of fear that they should have for God and the greatness of fear that they have for everything else in this world. They are inquiring of the living among the dead. And let me just be real. Like any place we go to calm our souls other than the living God is exactly this. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter if it's someone I trust. God's not giving it to me, so I'm gonna get it from you. Tell me I shouldn't be afraid. It doesn't matter if it's the government. It doesn't matter if it's election results that are gonna give us comfort. It doesn't matter if it's the news. In fact, I would say the news is a bad place to go for your hope (laughs) because they generate their revenue by cultivating fear to some degree. If your comfort comes from what anyone says other than the mouth of the living God, you are inquiring of the dead for the sake of the living. God tells us what is what. And God is warning us in this text as we dive into Isaiah 9, do not fear what this people fears. Do not fear what this world fears. Doesn't mean we should be uninformed. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be paying attention to the world around us. Doesn't mean we shouldn't fight to protect our communities or, or fight to protect our country and the good of well-being of others. Of course we should do that. What is being said here is we do not do that without honoring our God alone as holy fearing him first. So many actions, I think, of the American church this year have been based on knee-jerk fear. It doesn't matter what size we are on any issue, to be perfectly honest. If it's rooted in it, if it's being, if it's being driven by a fear, it's the wrong side to be on it. If we claim to have the God that we claim. There are only two kinds of people in this passage. There's no third person. There are people who fears what this world fears and there are people who fear God alone. One 
hopes in God and one has no dawn. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28, one of the most shocking things he said, and he said shocking things. This is one of the most. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, honor God alone as holy. Don't fear anything in this world. That includes anything you can conceive of right now, whether it be the coronavirus or whether it be unrest, whatever, you might, whatever might be gripping you right now, this moment. Jesus is saying, don't fear it. Do not fear it. The worst those things can do to you is kill you. That's the worst it can do. And so Jesus is saying here, why are you afraid of that? Rather, fear God, who can do infinitely more. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Honor him as holy, because God is the only one in the universe and outside the universe that can destroy both body and soul in hell. A virus and 10,000 worst case scenarios that you can conceive of can do nothing compared to what is being described here. And so Jesus is saying, listen, do not be afraid of those things. Do not be afraid of those things. Honor God, the creator and sustainer of all reality as holy. And one of the reasons why we can trust Jesus here, why Christians who believe in him and who love him can trust Jesus in this statement is that there is nothing in this world that can take from us the glory that Isaiah 9 promises to deliver. Nothing in this world. Not a single thing in this world. And the pathway to being a recipient of the promise that we see in Isaiah 9, this kingdom of unending peace, is to trust and fear God alone. The reason the darkness in chapter eight is so horrible is because it's the one thing that keeps us from the promise of chapter nine. This glorious kingdom where there's no oppression, there's no war, there's no violence, there's no threats against us anymore. It is peace and unending joy for countless ages. The only way into that kingdom is through trusting and fearing God. And therefore, Jesus is making a promise here that he will not break. He will not break. How does God, this is the question that we should ask when we get to a text like this that poses this kind of promise. How does God take people like us and transform people like us from people that are prone to fear things in this world over God to fearing God rightly alone and to honoring him as holy? How does God accomplish that in a world broken like ours? Well, the answer to that question is in Isaiah 9, verse 1 and 2. And that's where we're going to end. In the middle of the darkness of the end of chapter 8, in the middle of the gloom of anguish, this is what is said. Isaiah says, but there will be no gloom. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, 
He brought, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This is hope. This is hope breaking into the middle of fear, breaking into the middle of the darkness and shining brightly. I want you to hear me. God has not left you in the darkness. No matter where you are, no matter what you're experiencing right now, he has not left you in the darkness. He's come to rescue you from your fear in this world and to fix your hope on him alone. And if you do, I, I promise you, he will be a sanctuary for you. He will be a, a refuge for you. Isaiah here in this text is talking about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which was beyond the Jordan. These parts of Israel, back when Isaiah was alive, were the first places to go into captivity. They were the first people to be exiled and sent off to Assyria. And God chooses this place to shine the light first. This territory called Galilee of the nations, probably because it was right next to all the Gentiles. That's where light breaks in. That's where dawn breaks upon the very land that experienced and tasted the darkness first. God in this text is staring into the darkness and he is shining his light. He's making glorious the way of the sea, this Galilee, which if you're familiar with the book of Matthew, sounds very familiar. Matthew 4.12. Now when he, Jesus, had heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why'd you do that, Jesus? So that what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then Matthew quotes it. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. They've seen a light. And that light is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. That's how God has made the way of the sea glorious. He sends his son into the darkness in order to shine into the hearts of his people. And this shining light, this light... So powerful. It not only decimates the darkness of our fear, but it opens up the door to the promise of Isaiah 9 so that we can enter in. Jesus alone brings us into the kingdom of Isaiah 9. And the reason Jesus can do this is because that light that shines into our darkness did not just shine from a manger. It shined from a cross. It shined in his dying for his people. And so the only solution to the darkness, the only solution to the darkness of, of Isaiah 8 and 9 is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And that guaranteed, this is unbelievable, guaranteed that if you belong to him, 
Isaiah 9 and its unblushing blessings belong to you. They will not be taken away. There's not a thing in this world that can take it away. Not a thing. Everything in this glorious kingdom, the peace, the justice, the righteousness is ours because of a son who was given, a child who was born, who died on a cross for us. And that son is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.13, we went through Colossians a few years back, says to us, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. The moment you receive Jesus in faith, that happens to you. Transfer complete. No take backs. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness, which tells us there is nothing in this world worthy of our fear. Nothing in this world worthy of our fear. Not a single thing. Because the only thing that is worthy of our fear has become our sanctuary. He has become our refuge. He has become our protection. Nothing in this world can take the promise of Isaiah 9 from us. Not a single thing. The cross has erased the need that you and I would naturally feel to be afraid of anything in this world or to seek comfort and refuge in anything in this world but God alone. And that is why we have this promise. That's why we have Isaiah 9 in our Bibles to tell us, I don't take this back, it's yours. Trust me, make me into your sanctuary. So as we close here in a moment with communion, Todd's gonna come up and sing in a little bit. And when we do that and you take the elements, I, I wanna just have your mind set on a very simple truth. And I want you to feel it. Just as you take the elements, as you worship and think about the son that was given, the child that was born, think about this. The reason that Jesus can tell us not to fear anything in this world, including someone trying to kill us, isn't because there are not scary things in this world. There are scary things in this world. The reason Jesus can tell us that is because being with him in the end will make every single thing that we experience in this life worth it. No matter how hard it may be for us in this life, one day you and I will open our eyes and be staring into the face of the one for whom we were made. The one who died for us so that the promise of Isaiah 9 can never ever be broken. Think about this, the moment that you see him, the moment that you lay eyes on Jesus, no matter how hard your life was, no matter how horrific certain experiences were, no matter how horrible your exit from this world may have been, one moment in his presence and none of that will matter anymore, I promise you. Every painful experience, every threat, every traumatic event, every wrong that you have suffered from other people, one millisecond in the presence of King Jesus will make up for all of it. And you will say, I'm home. I'm home. So risen hope, do not fear what this people fears. Don't fear it. Fear God and honor him as holy. And I promise you, more than that, he promises you 
that nothing in this world can take away what he's purchased for you on the cross. Nothing, not a single thing. He is paid for Isaiah 9 to be ours with the blood of his son, and therefore, it is ours. And so as we go through the rest of this series, recognize this isn't a hope that we have that is just floating out there. This is a hope that we have that we know is going to be reality. One day, we will all be with him in glory. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father, I know I can say that. And it's easy to hear in the comfort of a living room or in the warmth of a church pew. But it will be harder when seasons of trial come upon us. I pray that you would bury this promise, this hope, this reality so deeply into our souls that it will not matter what happens to us. That we will hope, trust, treasure, cling to as our sanctuary, God alone. We wouldn't put hope in this world or the things of this world, but that we would trust God and honor him alone as holy. Father, I I pray that your grace would help us understand in this season, especially as we celebrate the birth of your son and his entrance into this world, Father, the precious gift that he is. He is not only the way we get into the kingdom of Isaiah 9. He is the focal point of every joy we will have for all eternity. Help us taste some of that in this season, in a year that has been so costly to us. Help us know that we have a treasure in Jesus that is infinitely greater than any cost we could ever endure in this world. We give you all the glory, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.